0: Good morning. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas around here. We have a few more weeks left in our sermon series on a renewed theological vision and mission for our church. And for the last few weeks, we've been looking at really one side of the gathered, scattered paradigm, at the activities that the church participates in when we gather as an institution. And from here on out, we'll look at the scattered activity of the church. That is, the things that we're called to do when we leave this place and continue to walk the road of discipleship with Jesus in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, and more. And I don't think it's possible for us to give every answer to those questions in a sermon series, but we'll begin today by asking the question Who is our neighbor? If we're to scatter from this place in our neighborhoods on mission for Christ, who is our neighbor? And one of the most familiar parables of Jesus in all of Scripture helps us, of course, to answer that question, the parable of the good Samaritan from Luke chapter 10. So that's where we'll be this morning. Young worshipers, there's a a detail that I want you to pick up on as I read the text. So, The man in the story is going to be traveling to a certain place. Where is he traveling to? Write that down, and in just a little bit we'll come back to why that's important. So, Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? he went to him and bound up his wounds, wounds, pouring an, on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, "Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back." Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor who fell to the man who fell among robbers? He said the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. All flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but these words of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Increase, O God, the spirit of neighborliness among us, that in peril we may uphold one another in suffering, tend to one another. In homelessness, loneliness, or exile, befriend one another after the example of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Would you be seated? Well, around the last major campaign season, a friend of mine wrote an article that details the way that people view their neighbors in modern society. You know, you really have some people who like to engage with their neighbors and foster that sense of community in the place that you live. That's probably a lot of Lake Highlands folks. It's easy to see that that's a communal value in our part of town, But in other neighborhoods, you you have people who just don't interact with with their neighbors at all, such that the place that they live really no longer has any special capital or meaning in their lives. And we've seen a redefinition of the word neighbor, in a sense, in the post-COVID world, with a lot of people relocating to work remotely and so forth, choosing the place and the context that we live based on our ability to work from thousands of miles away. Obviously, this is a relatively new phenomenon. For most of human history, the places that we lived and worked were rather fixed, based on where your family grew up or maybe what land you were tied to in an agrarian society. For a lot of human history, people's neighbors were incidental to their family and work life, so they naturally developed neighborly relationships with people who are different from them, but now we really do have the ability to choose our neighbors, right? What did the automobile do? It allowed us to live and work in very different neighborhoods. And this is all the more true of the internet, where we can essentially curate our own neighborhoods. Surely you understand that by now, that your social neighborhoods on whatever media platform you subscribe to are curated for you based on the websites you visit, based on the, the articles you click on, and, and more. And, and more than that, we have the power today that it's unlike anything we've ever seen in human history, the unfollow button, right? Someone posts an article you don't like, it's easy as a click of a button to excommunicate them from your social neighborhood. So this is Halloween week, right? Someone has a sign in their yard for the opposite party or whatever. You don't like it. You can just skip their yard. You don't need anything from them. You don't need their candy. So we recognize this shift until really late modern times. People have not had the technological power to curate their own neighborhoods. But the question is, is it the technology or is it the human heart that really drives this narrowing definition of the word Neighbor. Do we divide ourselves into comfortable, homogenous communities because we have the technology and the wealth to do it, or is there something more? Well, maybe it's easier in modern society, but the question is as relevant today as it ever was Who is my neighbor? And perhaps more pointedly for the Christian, who am I called to reach and to love? With the sacrificial love of Jesus? Well, Jesus, of course, tells a very ancient story to help us with answers to these questions the parable of the Good Samaritan, which I think shows us how life on the road with Jesus entails a love for our neighbor according to Jesus' model and not the social neighborhoods that we curate for ourselves. Indeed, Jesus' own ministry and mission help us with an ever-broadening definition of the word neighbor, as we'll see today. And, and I want to enter into this story from a few different perspectives. First, from the perspective of our neighborhoods. Now, this little parable is located within the travel narrative in Luke's gospel. We talked about that way back at the beginning of this sermon series, that it's a collection of Jesus' teachings and his ministry along the road from Galilee to Jerusalem as he sets his face toward the cross and his impending death. And in this narrative, Luke isn't necessarily concerned to give us exact dates of specific events and things like that. Instead, he's more concerned to help us see through the lenses of Jesus' teaching what what, what life on the road of discipleship with him looks like. And so he recounts a time when Jesus is conversing with some of the legal experts in Israel, likely the Pharisees. And one particular expert stands up to say this, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this often happens in the Gospels, where the religious elites who are threatened by Jesus' ministry, they try to trap him in his words. And you can kind of see this Socratic debate erupting on the the floor of whatever public square this takes place in. And by the way, it's almost always comical how frustrating it is for the Pharisees when they try to debate Jesus, because not only does he know their tactics, he knows their hearts. And so he says, hey, you're an expert in the law, you tell me. Now, the the law expert actually answers correctly from a legal perspective. His answer is a sweeping summary of the entire Mosaic law. It's not unlike the answer that Jesus gives in Matthew 22 about the greatest commandment. And it's a correct answer. One way to inherit the kind of blessedness that this lawyer is asking about is to keep the entirety of the law. And so Jesus says, yep, go do all that and you'll live. Okay, let's entertain that then for a moment. It seems like a tall order, quite frankly, to me, but let's, let's say that you could keep the great commandment in Deuteronomy 6 to love God wholeheartedly at all times and in every way. What about your neighbor? How do I obey a law of love toward my neighbor Such that his needs are just as important as my own. Ah, I know. I'll curate my own neighborhood. This is why Luke insightfully tells us that the lawyer is trying to justify himself by asking, Who is my neighbor? There were a few different ways that an Israelite, a first century Jew, would have answered that question. One was this My neighbor is anyone who's not my enemy. And in this sense, you can kind of imagine maybe a remote possibility of always loving your neighbor as yourself. As long as I like him, I can love him, right? Well, another way to answer that question in the first century was this. My neighbor is anyone who's an Israelite. So at least there we have a common culture, common religious code, common values, so we're speaking the same language. But the Pharisees took this this question, this definition of neighbor to a whole new level. They said, hey, my neighbor is the Pharisee because they really believed that anyone who didn't know the law like them was an outsider. So for the Pharisees, love your neighbor really equated to something like love your frat bros. All right, I'm going to, I'm going to both embarrass and date myself with an illustration, but I'm willing to do that and take that risk because I love you. If you are around my age, it's almost certain that you saw the 1999 film She's All That with Hollywood heartthrob Freddie Prince Jr., where he is the popular quarterback of the football team. And he makes a bet with his friends that he can take the strangest nerdiest girl in school and turn her into the prom queen. And so he begins to to engage with this girl and she begins to transform into something like your prototypical prom queen. And what he's betting on is his his own popularity as part of the inner circle to be the thing that makes her worthy of such a transformation. Well, if you know anything about rom-coms, you know his plot gets exposed And everything kind of falls apart. There's a major falling out. But you also see in this film that the things that seem so wonderful about the in crowd are exposed for the darkness they bring with them. And I mention this here because here we have a very... Ancient story being told by Jesus and a very modern example of the human tendency to curate our own neighborhoods, to create or to recreate our neighbors in our own image. And in both, we see how utterly futile this project is. Jesus is about to utterly deconstruct this lawyer's view, not only of his neighbor, but of the whole law and what it aims at. He's going to say, hey, you Pharisees think that keeping the law is a tall order, right? That's really why the Pharisees uh, had all these extra-biblical strictures, really to bring the law down to their level. Well, Jesus is going to say, you have no idea. No idea what it means to be wholeheartedly devoted to God and wholeheartedly sacrificially loving to your neighbor." This is where we enter the, the, the parable and look through the lenses of Jesus' neighborhood. You probably know the contours of the story. A Jewish man is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. And now, from the rest of the story, we can infer he's traveling back to Jericho from Jerusalem after one of the great Hebrew feasts. Young worshipers, we talked, I said, watch out for where he's traveling to. And the reason that's important is because the first person that comes along is a priest, and he's also probably traveling home from Jerusalem, back to his home in Jericho, right after he's just served in the temple. So, what happens? The man gets in, intercepted by robbers, he gets beat half to death, and here comes the priest, just just, getting, just clocking out from the temple, And it doesn't seem like the priest even gets close enough to find out whether the man's dead or alive. He just passes by on the other side. You might say, well, he's a priest, and he can't go near a dead body because of his service in the temple. But his service in the temple has just ended. He's headed home from Jerusalem to Jericho, where many of the priests lived in his day. And more than that, as a priest, he knows that he's supposed to show mercy to those in need. That's actually part of God's law, to show mercy even to the stranger, the outsider, much less a fellow Israelite. So he has no excuse. He didn't just, he, he just doesn't get involved. And then along comes a Levite, a priestly assistant. And he seems maybe to get a little bit closer to the guy because he comes to the place and he sees the man, verse 31, but he still passes by. But who is it that finally stops? It's the Samaritan. You know who the Samaritan is to the Pharisaic audience of Jesus? He's the ultimate enemy. He's a half-breed. His ancestors wrongfully claimed Israel's land and wrongfully instituted false worship and all sorts of other things. He's really the modern Hamas leader to the modern Israeli. That's the level of animosity we're talking about here. But what happens? He has compassion on the wounded man. And he he gets down in the mud, and he uses his own resources of oil and wine to bind up his wounds, and he puts him on his own donkey and takes him to a place of care, and he incurs in himself the cost of this man's healing. Now, we have to kind of take stock here of how, this, how offensive this story was to Jesus' original audience. When Jesus gets to the punchline, he asks the lawyer, which one was the neighbor? And, and look what the lawyer says in verse 37, the one who showed him mercy. You know why he says that? Because he can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. Because it's so offensive to call a Samaritan a neighbor. Again, put forward whatever kind of animosity you want to use as an illustration. This is the the Russian official who helps the Ukrainian. This is the, the drug cartel leader who helps the border patrol agent. The point here is that Jesus has totally deconstructed this lawyer's view of the word neighbor. He says, here's what you don't realize about the law of love for one's neighbor, whereas you Pharisees, by curating your own neighborhoods, try to restrict the definition of neighbor to the smallest common denominator, the real definition, your real neighborhood, is so expansive that you have no hope of keeping this law. Jesus takes the farthest, most offensive, most radical outsider, and he says, no, that's your neighbor go be like this man. Because until you can love your neighbor like that, you have no hope of keeping the law of God. And indeed, the bad news is even worse than that. The lawyer was trying to justify himself. You know what Jesus has just done? Again, he's used the most radical, most offensive, most devastating story this Pharisee could imagine to show him that his self-justification is impossible. Indeed, you cannot love your neighbor wholeheartedly if this is your definition of neighbor. And while we're at it, you can't love God with your whole heart because it's not about external rule keeping. And guess what else? Guess what else? And here's a kind of a spoiler alert you are not the Good Samaritan. That's not the point. Here's here's how I know because if you're hearing this parable and you're thinking, yeah, man. These Pharisees, don't they know that they're supposed to love outsiders? I hate legalists. Guess what you've just done? You've just made the Pharisee the outsider. No, the story's not about you. It's not about me. It's about the true neighbor. I love that this story begins with a lawyer testing Jesus and ends with Jesus indicting the lawyer. All he has to do is say this, you go and do likewise. Ultimate mic drop. Because, of course, the lawyer can't go and do likewise. Not in the way Jesus has laid out. Of course, when we think about even the first great commandment love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength how do you set up rules to keep that law? You can't because it aims at your heart. And you might be able to fool others, but you ain't fooling yourself. You don't always love God with your whole heart, neither do I. I mean, look, this, this, this Texas Rangers playoff thing has exposed that for me, that I get way more excited and give way more of myself emotionally to a sporting event than I do in everyday life to the creator of the universe. Oh no, our pastor just admitted that. Yeah, you've elected a sinful pastor, half-hearted Weak, tired, sinful, selfish, self-serving, fractured, fragmented, pulled in a thousand directions by the passions that wage war within me. Sometimes I'm the priest who just passes by on the other side of the road so I don't have to get involved. Other times I'm the lawyer justifying myself because of how much I've done for God Hey, I'm a pastor. It's a hard job. We've got a hard life. Doesn't that get me some extra points? Most of the time, I feel like what Henry Nouwen calls the wounded healer, just limping along while I'm trying to help others. And don't even get me started about the the guilt that I can feel when I think about the the neighbors who live around me in my neighborhood. Just this morning, I'm walking my dog and praying and thinking, oh no, that neighbor, I haven't talked to them in months. Can I tell you a secret? None of that is the point of this story. Because the only true neighbor here is Jesus. He is the one who comes near to us in our brokenness. Who stoops low to save us, who binds us up at great cost to himself, not with oil and wine, but with his own flesh and blood. He comes to make outsiders and strangers part of his family. He comes to love half hearted creatures who mess around with all kinds of lesser pleasures or who make all kinds of extra biblical, external rules to please him. He's the good neighbor in this story. He's the good Samaritan, and life on the road with him radically defines, redefines our neighborhoods because of the way he left his neighborhood and moved into ours. You know, I don't know if you've noticed this, but but our city is rapidly changing, and no matter where you live, the, the question of who is my neighbor is worth asking again, because It's likely that your neighbor is different from you, right? Your your neighbor is the liberal California transplant. No offense, Californians. Your neighbor is the illegal immigrant. Your neighbor is the refugee or the single mother or the international student or the homeless person who's right out here on our corner when we leave today, How then can we scatter from this place and extend the kind of love that Jesus, the true neighbor, has shown to us? Well, in our new philosophy of ministry, we're really putting all of our chips in on outreach in our neighborhood groups and our parishes because... The Lord has sovereignly placed us in different places all around our city that look differently, different pockets, and He's given to each of our groups unique influences and places to serve. I've said this before, and those of you in the North Dallas parish, you know this because you've already been involved in it. You have in your backyard a university with one of the largest international populations of any university in America. You think there's opportunity for hospitality there? You folks who live in Lake Highlands, you have one of the largest and most diverse school districts in our state in your backyards, where there's more physical and emotional and spiritual need than you can imagine. In my neighborhood, I I live... Right near one of the largest mosques in North Texas, so I have more Muslims in my neighborhood than most places I know of. What is my responsibility to those neighbors? All around all of us, there are housing programs for single moms, there are pregnancy centers, there are homeless shelters. By the way, we have, for a number of years, supported as a church, Union Gospel Mission doing great work in our city here's what we're inviting you to do with our neighborhood groups and in your parishes. It's really to have the imagination to wonder who your neighbor is and how can you serve them. And you're not alone in this. Stephen and I have been meeting with Group leaders to talk about this. Our deacons are involved in so many mercy ministries all around our city, and they're here to help catalyze these efforts. The elders in your parish are here to come alongside you in that. But here's how I would start, and I would just challenge you, each of you who are neighborhood group leaders, to do this, if you haven't already. Next time you meet with your groups, sit down and ask yourselves this question. Who are our neighbors, and how can we serve them? Life on the road with Jesus means a radical reshaping of our social neighborhoods because Jesus radically left his place in heaven, and he came to our neighborhood to bind up our wounds and bid us come and follow him. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, let's pray. Oh, Lord our God, we give you thanks for your great and amazing love for us. That while we were weak, Christ died for us. That while we were left for dead by our own sin, our own idolatry, our own rejection, Christ came, bound up our wounds healed us, reconciled us. We pray even now as we come to your table that you would visibly remind us of that reconciliation, that you would signify and seal to us the death of Christ in our place, that you would meet with us and fill us up and fuel us as we scatter on mission for you in our world. In Jesus' name, amen.